If you have your Bible this morning, and go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, in a few moments, we'll be reading through the entire chapter of Ephesians chapter 2, where it's a little different than what's in the bulletin. I was going to uh, summarize the first half, but then I realized that that, that part uh, is so essential to what we're talking about today that we're going to go ahead and read it, okay? But, but we're, today we're talking about, as I mentioned earlier, the foundation that we're building as we're looking to grow and we're looking to expand and to, to follow God's will for the, for the church, to pursue God's will, as we talked about last week. And if we're building a foundation, I don't think there's any better place we can start than the gospel. The gospel is the foundation uh, that we're, is part of the foundation that we're going to be laying uh, for, for this church. But we have, to, we have to wonder, why is the gospel foundational? Why is the gospel foundational? Why does it matter that we're seeking to follow the gospel. Well, without the gospel, we wouldn't be here. There would not be Christian churches. There would not be Christians without the gospel. And as we're thinking about this idea of a foundation, we're trying to make sure that it's sure, it's stable, it is something that will hold and not give way, that, will, that everything we build upon it will stand and will stand firmly. And so we're, we're starting with the gospel. Without the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done for us, we wouldn't be here. And I don't think there's any chapter that, that, in my opinion, fully expresses the full story of the gospel any better than Ephesians chapter 2. And so we're going to go ahead and start reading Ephesians chapter 2, if you'll follow along, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcision, circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you who are, who, are, who are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you. For your word, I thank you that we're able to look and to see what you have said to us in, in, in Scripture. God, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we seek to look and, and understand what it means for our lives, what it means for this church, and what it means for the world. God, I pray that you would help us to understand exactly what the gospel does for us and to us, and that we can live our lives and, and can be a church that is pursuing a life that is completely devoted to obedience and following you in this. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So it's a, a long chapter, a long passage of Scripture, but I think it's important, and, and we're going to get into this in, in the course of this sermon. Trying to break the gospel down into one sermon, trying to break a passage like this down into one sermon is a lot, so we're really doing an overview here. There's a lot of specifics you can go into. You could do whole sermon series on the topic of the gospel. Uh, you could break this passage down into many smaller parts. But I want to look at the big picture of why the gospel is foundational. I don't know if, if you've ever had a house or you've had a house or seen a house or known a house with foundation issues that can be devastating to the house. Something that you didn't see or you don't realize is there that's not apparent at first can cause Destruction within the house, tear apart walls, can, houses can even begin to sink into the ground and they begin to fall down because the foundation did not hold. But we have a firm foundation and we see here that Christ is the very cornerstone of that foundation and the gospel and what he did is foundational to what we're doing. So why is the gospel foundational? The gospel is foundational for a few reasons. The gospel changes our relationship with God. The first thing is that God, the gospel changes our relationship with God. This is the most common thing we think about when we talk about the gospel. You're a sinner who is saved by what Jesus did on the cross. The gospel saves you from your sins. You were far away, right? We look at what, what the passage says. We were enemies with God, but now we're made right with Him. We understand our, our prior relationship to God. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. By nature, children under wrath as the others were also. All people are separated from God. We know this. This is the truth that we believe. This is why we are here. We know that we are sinners that are saved by grace because God changed everything. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive in Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. And it's important that we always remember that. It was completely and totally a work of God. We were dead in our sin. We were dead in our trespasses, separated from God, totally helpless, and God intervened. God loved us because of His love, because of His grace. He saved us. And then we see how this changes our situation with God. First, we were called enemies. But then it says, so that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us, in Christ Jesus. 
He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So we've gone from being enemies to seated with Christ in the heavenly places, being able to observe and enjoy His grace and His goodness that are available only because of what Christ has done for us. And He emphasizes again, you are saved by grace through faith. It's not from yourself. It is not a gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And we also see, for the vast majority of the people in this room, unless you know your heritage extremely well and you can trace it back, we would have been included with many of the people that Paul was talking to in this passage. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel. So when we look at the Bible, they, they were most specifically dealing with Greeks, who, who Paul was writing to, but all of the people outside of the, the nation of Israel were regarded as foreigners and outsiders and exiles and not a part of the promise that God had established with Abraham. What we see is for those people who previously had no hope or had to conform and come into, be adopted into this citizenship of Israel, Christ has exterminated those barriers and allowed for people outside of the, of the kingdom of Israel who have not entered into the kingdom of Israel to be saved. All people, all nations now can be saved through what Christ has done. And in this we see the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That he would be a blessing to all nations. Because of what Christ did, all people of all nations can have the hope in God that is provided in Jesus Christ. Where previously, this knowledge of God, this following of God, was only if you had been born into the kingdom of Israel or had converted and come into this kingdom. We are adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. It changes our relationship with God. No matter what your relationship with God was before, how you viewed God, and I think we all view Him in various ways, whether we viewed Him as someone who was angry with us, that we were, we were so bad that God could never love us, whether we were constantly trying to work so hard to, to please Him of our own merit, what Christ does is He gets rid of any preconceived notion you've had and helps you to understand that you were a sinner, but God loved you, and that you couldn't earn it, but God gave it to you. And so this is the good news of the gospel. Our relationship with God has changed. And I think that's the most common and the most understood aspect of the gospel. But it is not just our relationship with God that the gospel changes. The gospel changes our relationship with ourselves. The gospel tr changes our relationship with ourselves. Again, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we previously walked according to the ways of the world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them in, in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclination of our flesh and thoughts, as we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. We were people that were focused on what we wanted. We were people who were selfish and focused on the desires of our flesh. And that varies from person to person. Every person has various struggles and various problems. But what Scripture makes clear is that every person walked in this way, walked in a worldly fashion. There's this idea of, and it's, it's actually a, a mindset that people seek to follow, this idea of hedonism, where you seek your pleasure, and that is the greatest thing you can have. If you seek what, what sounds good to you, if you seek what is good to you, 
That is the best life you can live. And I think in reality, that is the default of people. People try to think of their own life, what will make them the happiest, bring them the most joy, the most pleasure that they can conceive, and they follow that. And that is the state that Christ came into and rescued us from. We were selfish. But we must shift to being God-focused when the gospel comes in. We can no longer be concerned with what we want, what I want. It goes from what do I want to what does God want for me. And the thing that we will realize if we follow God and if we are obedient in this is that when we do this, when we surrender, when we lay ourselves down, we are actually seeking and bringing ourselves the most pleasure that we could possibly have. There's this false idea that living the life that, that you can seek, the living the life that you can have, following your every whim, your every desire, will bring you happiness and peace in this life. But nothing is further from the truth. When we lay our life down, when we follow God, when we believe the gospel, and we become centered on what God wants for us, what He will give to us is far greater than anything that we will naturally desire or anything that we can attain on our own. Again, we see that he, will, he has raised us up so in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We also understand that, that our value should not any longer be viewed through a lens of how others perceive us or how we perceive ourselves, but rather how God sees us. So not only does our relationship with whether we are self-focused or God-focused change, the way we view ourselves changes. There is a, a massive problem in our world with things like de depression and anxiety and, and all of these things where we are so consumed with our own inadequacies. Whether we're good enough, whether we will be able to accomplish what we need to accomplish, whether we're going to live up to what we think or what people think, we ought to be. And it is only in Christ that we can be completely freed from this burden. Because we no longer are worried about what our own expectations are, what the expectations of others are. But we are face to face with the one who knew our deepest faults. Better than anyone in your life knows, better than you probably even know yourself. Knew your deepest faults knew your deepest failings, and loved you anyway. Saw your best efforts that, were, that failed and loved you anyway. And so we no longer have to be judged by or, or marked by what we can gain in this world through worldly acclaim, what place we can elevate ourselves to, or how we can view ourselves. There's so much about self-confidence and self-esteem and self, self building yourself up, positive thinking. It's not about those things. It's not about how we view ourselves or what we can establish or what people will say to us. It's about how, what does God say about you? It says you are a loved child of God if you have believed the gospel. If you have been saved, you're a beloved child of God. And there's nothing that can take that from you. There is nothing that will, will steal that from you. And that is better than any other thing we can claim. And there's nothing else that will bring you more confidence we also see in Christ we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. 
This old person that we were, this, this sinful person that, that Christ died for has passed away, is being replaced by a new creation that was purchased in, by the blood of Christ. Now that doesn't mean in this life you will be perfect. We still live in the flesh. We still have to struggle with temptation. But we've been given His Holy Spirit. We've been given the ability through submission to God, through following God, to overcome in this life. Not perfectly, and not in a way that saves us, because that has already been done through the way Christ overcame the grave. So we see our relationship with ourself changes. But in the same way, the gospel changes our relationship with the world. The gospel changes our relationship with the world. We were once in the world and of the world. Again, you were dead in your trespasses. Talking about how we were walking in the world, the, the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the disobedient, in which you walked according to the ways of this world, that we all lived among them. But we see that in Christ we must be in this world, but not of this world. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Pursuing God's will, will require, requires a mind that is transformed and not conformed. And this is where I think things get difficult. This is where I think the gospel's impact on our life often starts to diminish if we are honestly assessing ourselves as Christians. That's a problem because the Bible very clearly says that the gospel and following Christ should change the way that we interact with the world. And this is a, a big statement here, but I, I think this is very true. And I think it, I can show you some examples of this. If you find yourself firmly rooted in a, with an ideology that is grounded in worldly concerns and desires, it is likely you're focused on the wrong things. No matter how good that thing may appear at first. So when we talk about this, when we talk about being in the world but not of the world, focused on God rather than focused on the world, when we find ourselves affiliating with and, and, and close to these things that are not things that are primarily concerned with God, eventually, eventually we will begin to compromise following God in favor of of these worldly things. I want to share an example of this with you. I, I think that Christians should be concerned and, and involved in politics. We should be concerned with our country, the, the affairs of our world. But in our nation in particular, and I think this is a, a various struggle for other Christians in different nations, but in our nation you have primarily two parties. And if you've noticed in, in this climate, these parties have become increasingly, increasingly divided and, and polarized. Now, well, the point that I want to show to you is that, is that not that one is right and one is wrong inherently, because I think many Christians throughout time have, have probably carried the label of each party. But when Christians become so concerned about their political affiliation, their faith begins to change. I have seen... You, you have likely seen the, the arising of the progressive church. You will find a very certain political ideology in the progressive church. 
And you will find that that ideology, the, their social beliefs, their, their ideas of what the, should happen in the world has informed and changed their faith. I don't think it's the other way around. I don't think these people started at Scripture and then came to these conclusions. In the same way, on the other side, you will see people that have taken their, their love of country and taken their love of, of a certain way of the country being and who they want to be president and have changed their faith. This is not every Christian. This is not every church. But on the extremes, you see how people have changed their faith and have compromised what they believe because they have been involved first and foremost in a worldly thing. When we involve ourselves in worldly things, it changes the way we interact with God. We are, to be, we are not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, perfect will of God. We should be involved in politics. We should, but when we're involved in politics, we should start with where the Word of God is and take that into how we interact with those things. When we go to our jobs, we should not be so concerned with our jobs that it begins to affect the way we view our faith. When we raise our children or our children are in schools, we should not be so concerned or invested in the school that it changes the way we raise our children. There are so many things that if we will invest in those things, it changes the way you interact with God. Because you conform to what the world is doing rather than be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We must be faithful in this. We must seek what God is doing. When it comes to the culture that is around us, there are four things that, that Christians most often do. This is from Andy Crouch in his book called Culture Making. Most often Christians will either condemn, critique, copy, or consume culture. The idea of condemning culture, we've all seen that, where there are things that happen in the world and Christians will just stand firm and say that is wrong and I'm not going to be about it. And there are times where that is needed, for sure. But it's not the only default way to interact with culture. You can't just condemn everything. We, we're living in this world. We critique culture. We say, well, if this was different, then it would be good. We, we critique. We look at it. We say, well, this needs to be changed. This needs to be changed. And we become people that are constantly complaining. Or we copy it. We take something that's catchy. We take something that's interesting. And we just kind of slap a, a fresh coat of paint over it and call it Christian and, and just resell re it to the Christian world. You've probably heard some of those catchy songs that are just re remakes of, of uh, secular songs that have Christian words now. And sometimes those are fun and they're meant for fun. But there are times where Christians genuinely try to copy culture and just give that as what they are presenting to the world. And probably the most harmful one is that Christians sometimes just consume culture. They take what the world is giving and don't question it and just consume it and enjoy it without any question to what it is or what, what it's about. But if we are people who are changed by the gospel, influenced by it in our lives, we will be people who create culture around us. When we go into the workforce, when we go into the world, we will do things and influence the world around us. Christ did not follow along or, or just simply yell about what was happening. He did things that transformed lives. The apostles, when they went into the world, they shared the gospel and it transformed lives. This didn't simply participate or separate. Uh, that is the wrong answer. It is not completely engage with the world and, and have no boundaries and have no restrictions with it or isolate ourselves in a mountain and do nothing. 
Those are the, we, are, we are such extreme people as human beings. We either do it or we don't. But following God is difficult because we have to be in the world. We have to share the gospel, but we have to not be stained by the world. And we should leave something positive in the world. And that positivity only comes from the gospel and how the gospel changes our lives. And we do all of this because we are citizens of heaven and not citizens of this world. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see the hall of faith where it talks about the ways they followed God and how they were obedient to Him. And it says that these all died in faith, although they had not received the things they were promised, but they saw them from a great distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a place for them. And this acknowledges that this world is tempting. It says if they were thinking about where they came from, they would have sought to return. We think about the story of Lot and his wife, and Lot was going forward into where God is calling him to be, going forward into what God is calling him to do, where He has delivered him from a place of evil. But what does his wife do? She looks back, and she's punished. If we look back, if we look at this world, we will be mired by it. We will struggle with sin. We must look at to what God has prepared ahead of us and to allow that to interact the way we move through this world and not to be caught up in, in seeing what's around us and focusing on those things. And we see that the gospel changes our relationship with others. By nature, human beings tend to divide and group themselves off. I mean, if you look at a, a globe or a map, there are so many divisions, and we have a, one nation that's 50 states, and then if you look on our continent, there's multiple nations, and then around the world, there's hundreds of nations. Many times these people look like each other, many times they don't. But all the time, we're very good at finding things to divide ourselves, to classify ourselves, to, to find an other this is an other group of people. These people are different from me. They're the bad. I am the good because of this reason. Or maybe it's mutual disagreement, but if, as long as they don't come against me, we're good. With, we see this very clearly in the Bible with the people of Israel. They were a distinct people, a people of God, and they were separated from the other nations. And, and God commanded them throughout Scripture not to associate, not to intermarry for good reason so they would not be stained, so that their following God would be maintained in purity. But we see something in Christ that, that changes the way that the people of Israel viewed others around them. Because we see this very clearly even in Jesus' life. The parable of the, of the Good Samaritan we don't think about that as often in the way that they would have received it. The, the Samaritans were in the Jewish people were, were like cousins that hated each other. Samaritans and Jews did not get along. Oftentimes they would, they would not associate. They argued, even though in many ways they were similar. They, they weren't having a, a, a pantheon of gods that they worshipped, but they did not get along. In Jesus, in telling the story of the Good Samaritan shares this idea that the person you dislike possibly more than anyone is the person that followed God more closely than the person that was like the pastor or the deacon or the Sunday school teacher. They walked by, but the person that you didn't like actually obeyed God. Perhaps the best 
retelling of this that I've ever seen was a part of a, a Bible study that, that I was helping lead on a Wednesday night. And this example showed New York City. And this study would have came out very closely. I think it was like 2002 when the study came out. And there was a person that, was, that had been beat up and had been mugged and was laying on the streets in New York City. And there's all these people that walk by. And I think one of them may have been a preacher. They were people that you would have thought maybe would have done it. But the person who stopped and helped was the Muslim man who stopped and helped him. And at that time, in particular, there would have been a lot of tension around that idea. When we look at Christ and what Christ did, He took all of these divisions, all of these lines that we draw, and in Christ, now understand that, in Christ, they can no longer exist. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The gospel removes all boundaries and distinctions in Christ. Galatians 3.27-29 says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek slave or free, male or female, since you were all in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Whatever way you can think that we divide ourselves, whatever way you can think that, that you have classified people, those things in Christ cannot stand. Race, gender, age, nationality, whatever we may classify people by, they are all equally loved and valued in Christ. And this is difficult because there are times where people have reasons and have difficulties with other people. Maybe it's individuals. Maybe it's a certain, a certain area of people, a group of people, whatever it may be, whatever preconceived ideas we have, we have to lay those things aside for the sake of the gospel. So that comes to the idea that when we are interacting with Christians, we ought to be unified. Any divisions, any classifications that may separate us should be subservient to following Christ. We should love our Christian brothers and sisters. Jesus prayed for this in the garden, that, that we would be one as He and the Father are one, so that the world would know we were His disciples by the unity that we had. But also means that we must lay aside any bias or distinction in how we love and treat those that are not in Christ, not because they are, are, it's not a universalist idea, it's not that they are saved, it's not that there is no distinctions, it's not that you can't see distinctions, but it's that Christ loves that person. Every person you encounter, no matter how much you may dislike what they believe, no matter how much you may dislike what they stand for, no matter how much you may dislike what they have done in their life, that person is a person that Christ died for. And as we interact with them, we must have the gospel and what Christ has done for us transform and inform the way we live and interact with them. We must love them like Christ has loved us. And this is difficult. And often we see, sadly, that, that there are times where Christians are unloving people. Where people who bore the name of Christ, who are calling themselves Christians, do things that are unloving. This is not what the gospel calls us to do or commands us to do. It can be difficult there are probably people here that have had run-ins with people 
that, that, have, that are hard for them to love. There are probably people you can think of in your life that are very hard for you to love. But Christ calls us to. I don't think it gets much harder than the people that Christ died for actively sinning against Him. That the only time we are faithful is only after we've been purchased by Christ. And even then we struggle. It's because of what Christ has done. Because the reality is, is that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. All that we are and all that we are about should shift to be in line with what God is, is in and what God is about. You know, there are very few things, there are probably select moments in your life that have changed your life. You can look back and think of times where after that moment, everything was different. Everything changed. If that had not happened, your life would have gone a completely different direction. This is not the small things. It's not going to a restaurant and they, don't, they have Coke products instead of Pepsi products. Those things don't dr- dramatically change your life. But the, the day you met the person that you married, the day you got married, the day you had kids, these things change your life. The day you, you realized what you wanted to do with your life. You know, there, there's so many stories of people who, I, I know for me, before I was called, called to ministry, I tore my shoulder up playing baseball. And seeing how the, the doctor was able to help me get back to playing baseball, I thought that that was going to be what I was going to do. There are moments that you have that shape and change the way you are. The gospel is the first and foremost of these things. When you encounter Christ, nothing in your life should be the same. Everything should be different. And everything should be shaped because of what the gospel and by what the gospel has done for you. And that is what it means for the gospel to be foundational in our lives and foundational in the church. Everything that the church does must be founded upon the gospel. Now, this does not mean that we only gather and we only discuss the gospel and that when you, when you go to your Sunday school class, the only thing that will be talked about is what Jesus did on the cross. Or, or when you meet with your Christian friends, that the only thing you do is talk about what Jesus did on the cross. It's important, it's, it's important we constantly remember that. That's why we, we take the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves about what Jesus did. But it means that because of what Christ has done for us, everything about us is different. Everything about the way we interact with others is different. The way that we, we do the things we do in the church should be an accurate reflection of the gospel. To faithful to what God calls us to be and faithful for what God calls us to do for others. As we look at the, the programming we have, as we look at the classes we do, as we look at everything that happens in this church over this next year, this is what it means to make the gospel foundational. There will be times where we will probably realize that something needs to adjust. It may need to adjust to become more gospel-centered. It may need to adjust to be more in line with what God calls us to be. And there will definitely be times, if you're seeking to faithfully follow God, where you will see in your life places you need to adjust Places you need to change if you're wanting to faithfully follow Him. Places you need to be bold. Places you need to, to step out on faith and to follow Him. And if as a collective group of people we will do this and put the gospel as a foundational element of every single day of our life, everything will change. The way that we live our life will change. The, the way that people see the way that we live will change Our witness will change and will be more effective because we are following God. And we're distinct because of what God has done for us.
And so this morning, as we come to this time of invitation, has the gospel changed everything in your life? Has the gospel transformed everything about your life, the way you view God, your relationship with Him? Has it changed your relationship with yourself? Have you changed because of what the gospel has done? Have you allowed the Holy Spirit to work in your life and to transform you? Has your relationship with the world changed, or does it look no different from before the day you were saved? Has your relationship with other people changed? Is your life surrendered and, and, and flowing out of what the gospel has done in your life? Maybe this morning you have never responded to the gospel. Maybe you're sitting here and you realize and you understand that and maybe you've been in church before. Maybe this is not your first time in a church building, but you understand that, that following and trying to do your best, trying to be a good person is not enough, and you must rely on what Jesus Christ has done for you. You must understand that you are a sinner. You must, you must confess that you are a sinner and believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins to make Him the Lord and Savior of your life. Wherever you are, in, in, in a few moments we're going to stand and we're going to sing, and, and I will be down front, and if you would like prayer, if you would like to pray about something going on in your life, if you would like to talk about what it means to make Christ your Lord and Savior, now is the time to do that this morning. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this day that you've given us. I thank you for this time we have to come together and to, to focus on you, to, to remember what you've done for us. God, I pray that you would be with us in this moment to help us reflect on our lives, to help us reflect on whether or not we are focusing on the gospel as a foundational element of our life and how we can do that in a more devoted way. How we can allow ourselves to be transformed by you, to see what you are doing and to, to be transformed by that. Father, I pray that you would help us to examine ourselves in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.